my friends, welcome to Rainbow Parenting. I'm your host, Linz Amer, and today we are talking about anti-racist parenting with Britt Hawthorne. I am so, so stoked to bring you this incredible interview. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. We're going to be talking about anti-racist parenting practices, obviously. That is the title of Brit's forthcoming book that is out in bookstores, wherever you get your books right now. Go and listen to this podcast first, but you can go and buy Britt Hawthorne's book, Anti-Racist Parenting. We're going to be talking about it quite a lot. We're going to be talking about cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. We're going to be talking about some of the overlapping strategies that we need to be able to do rainbow parenting and queer and gender affirming parenting and education that also tie to anti-racism. There's a lot of overlap in these spaces, and Britt and I spoke a lot about that. And we're going to be using the tools that we're developing as folks who are practicing anti-racism and practicing rainbow parenting, queer and gender affirming parenting. But before we get into that, I have a little bit of business. As I've said before, you can support this podcast through the Queer Kid Stuff Patreon page. Throughout this month of June, we are running a special promotion on the Patreon page, and we are doing an exclusive limited edition sticker bundle for every new Patreon patron who signs up or any existing patron who levels up their amount of giving per month. You're going to get three stickers. You're going to get a round You Are Enough Teddy sticker. You're also going to get an It's Okay to Be Gay sticker, which I think is really perfect for water bottles right now, especially if you live in the state of Florida, for instance. And we also have a third sticker that's the logo for the podcast. So if you're liking the podcast, you can rip it on your laptop, on your sticker door. I personally have a weird sticker door at home where we have lots and lots of awesome stickers. These stickers are going front and center on my sticker door, and I'm so excited for them to get sent out to our brand new patrons who are supporting this podcast and all the work that we do at Queer Kids Stuff over on the Patreon page. So just head over to patreon.com and look for the Queer Kids Stuff page, and you're going to get a sticker bundle at any tier. It doesn't matter if you give $1 a month, or if you do the full year and do $50 a month, or if you just do the normal, regular $5 a month, you're going to get a sticker bundle. So those are only happening this June, so make sure you do that today. That's the business. Thank you for staying with me. We are going to get to my conversation with Britt, but before we get there, here's what you need to know. I want to talk a little bit about privilege before we get into this conversation with Britt, because it's something that I think we kind of talk a little bit about in the conversation, but we don't speak to it directly. And I think that we kind of came into this conversation hoping that people will have a body of knowledge about what privilege is. And, and I think probably if you're listening to this, you probably have some understanding of what privilege is. But I just want to make sure we're on the same page and we're kind of getting a little bit more nuanced about the idea of privilege and how we can come to conversations around queer and gender-affirming parenting, but also around anti-racist parenting and other justice spaces and topics that we're talking about on this podcast. So the way that I'm thinking about privilege here is about the 
society that we live in and how we walk through this society and the way that it's structured and the oppressive systems and the systems that do uplift certain people of certain identities and how our skin, our gender, our way of presenting ourselves into the world, how we walk through the world in our brains and our bodies and how the world affects us and the ways that we are able to move through the world smoothly and easily and where it's more difficult and a little bit more bumpy, maybe. I think it's really easy to think about privilege as a competition. You know, I have this much privilege and 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 I don't have this much privilege. And how are we, you know, fighting against each other because you have more privilege than I do, or I'm more oppressed than you are. And I think that can be a really difficult way to think about privilege in the context of this work, and especially when we're talking to children. That way of thinking about privilege pits people against each other when we're actually in the same fight against the system that is oppressing us. I think it's just so easy to get into these kind of privilege Olympics and and start to get into it with each other when it's a waste of energy, right? I think that we need to work together and understand where we can help someone and use our smooth ride to help someone whose ride is a little bit more bumpy. And I think that ultimately that is a more helpful framing of understanding privilege. And that's not to erase the violence of privilege and a lack of privilege because are the system that oppresses all of us is incredibly violent. And this is not to diminish that in any way, but it's to turn our heads from looking at each other and each other's privilege and lack of privilege. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't be calling folks in when they need to work on a growth edge or their own need to be moving forward in their anti-racism practice or, or need to be educated on something. But I think that we need to be turning our heads away from each other in the fight and toward the system that is putting this pressure on all of us and and making everything unequal, right? That is the problem. And the work of that system is in distracting us from that being the problem, right? It, it, it does its work and its machinations on that level of, of getting us to look away from that problem and distracting each other by these interpersonal issues that are not, not legitimate. But I think that this is hopefully a helpful reframing of privilege to, to think about the space that we're in and how we can help each other. I think that that's the crux of what I'm trying to get at. So hopefully we can bring this into the conversation and, and contextualize the conversation that I'm having with Britt about uh, anti-racist parenting. And that's enough of me talking. Let's get into the conversation. Oh my goodness, everyone. I am so, so excited to have this next guest on the pod. I am here with Britt Hawthorne. Hello, Britt. How are you today? Hey, Lens. I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the pod. Um, how are you? I'm I'm doing the thing. It is a hard time to be a trans person in the world right now, but uh, we are... 
we are here and I'm here with you and I'm sharing virtual space with our listeners and I am really stoked today to talk about anti-racist parenting and overlaps with queer liberation and how we can work that into parenting and education strategies. So we're going to talk a lot about that, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, Before we get into that, can you tell me your pronouns and how you identify? Yes, my pronouns, I feel most affirmed by she and they pronouns. And I identify as do all of my kind of like social indicators. Okay. All the things. Okay. Yeah. I love this. Why do you love that? I love it because the goal isn't just like, hey, can you rattle off a list of social indicators and identities? The goal is for all of us to say, like, well, in that exact moment, who am I in community with? And then in relation to their social identities, how do I either need to take space, advocate for myself, or how do I need to make space and advocate for other folks? So I love that. So for me, I identify as a Black, biracial, cisgender woman. I identify as queer. I identify as always kind of going in between middle class and upper class. There's like a fluidity that happens um, kind of depending on the year and consulting and capacity. Mm -hmm. Freelance. Love it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like this kind of like fluidity. I identify Mm -hmm. um, as a mom, a wife, partners. Oftentimes I would refer to my husband a uh, sister, a daughter, a friend, a neighbor. I typically speak in standard American English, but I grew up listening to and using African-American vernacular English. So sometimes that slips in there, particularly if I'm super comfortable um, and around Mm. loved ones. Oh, my worldview growing up is a Protestant worldview. And so I go to an Episcopal church and I don't necessarily like own that denomination, nor a Protestant denomination, but I recognize the privilege that I have by having a Protestant worldview and the information that I can access having that background. I'm college educated. I think that's important to know to go along with socioeconomic status. I grew up in a nuclear family, steeped in heteronormativity, steeped in it. Does that feel comprehensive enough? That feels incredibly comprehensive in like a really, really beautiful way of like, I feel like I have a full context for you Mm. and like where you're coming to this work. And I think that that's so rare and that the transparency around like the context of our lives through which we come to work like this. And so I I so, so appreciate you sharing all of that with me and with um, folks listening. And I'm, I'm really stoked to get into this conversation with you, especially couching this conversation within both of our experiences and coming to this work separately. I I love hearing the identities that I hold that are common to yours and also like where I diverge and where other people are hearing those overlaps and differences as well. And I think that really informs how we can speak to the ways that we're living our lives right now, right? And like the values that we take into it. (sighs) Cool. So, um, Let's let's just dive in. I want to talk about uh, your book, first of all, that's coming out, came out. Yeah, it came out on June 7th. Oh my gosh, like the world has access to my book and I'm so excited. That's, that's incredibly exciting. I am in the uh, continuing to finish writing my book. And so hopefully I'm going to be feeling those feelings this time next year. Um, but writing a book is a whole thing. My goodness. Um, yeah, let's 
talk about that process and like coming to the book and mm. and your background and and how you started doing this? Yeah, you know, my origin story, it's cliche because it's like everyone else's. It starts from the very beginning. It starts from the way in which I was parented. Mm. And I definitely was parented in a race conscious household. My mom is white, my dad is black. And so I can't ever remember a day that we literally did not talk about race. Like it was always conversations either about race or about cultural differences. So I didn't, even though a lot of folks that are in around my age grew up with a colorblind ideology, like we don't see color. And so therefore I can absolve myself from all responsibility of racism. I absolutely grew up in a race conscious household, but I didn't grow up understanding justice work or activism or like, I didn't even, honestly, if I could just be really honest, I didn't even really know how to advocate for myself and just what I now think about in the smallest ways, but at the time felt like the biggest ways, right? So I'm a second generation teacher, another identity. So I've been in the field of education literally my entire life, always known that I wanted to be a teacher. And then I've also, it's important to kind of note that being a second generation teacher means that I have picked up a lot of things that have happened generations before that we are now trying to dismantle, like the white savior complex that exists in education. I totally picked it up. I was like, watch out world, wait until I become a teacher. And the world has just been waiting on me and my goodness. And I'm going to like close all of this achievement gap. I'm going to dismantle any kind of systemic inequities. I'm going to make children love reading. Like I just knew I was going to be the teacher, the perfect teacher, right? And then I taught a couple of years and was like, wait a minute now. (laughs) I think the problem is a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's me, right? And I wonder where I picked up these ideologies of saviorism and these practices. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the thought, it's the way that I showed up by like always saying yes to being on all of the committees, saying yes to parents. Like, absolutely, I can tutor your child for free after school while my children sit in aftercare or in the corner of the room and they're hungry, right? Absolutely. I can X, Y, and Z and just not really knowing how to set boundaries for myself with others and then how to maintain them. But, you know, kind of fast forward, became a teacher, realized, gosh, diversity really isn't the goal, right? It's not like, how do we just get to talk about differences? How do we get to exist with differences, but how do we actually create justice and equality, right? Like equality and then becomes the goal. So I should be able to look at graduation rates or college acceptance rates, or I should be able to look at attendance rates and say, regardless of your racial identity or regardless of your sexuality or gender identity, we should be seeing 80% X, Y, and Z, right? Or 70% X, Y, Z or 99%. But today it's like, I can show you a bar graph, not have the bottom labels filled in and see a bar graph with the bars declining and ask educators across the country, can you fill in these racial, you know, identities or SES identities, right? And four out of five across the country, they're going to get it right. Which means that those indicators right now have a larger or a bigger predictor of quote unquote success than anything else. Okay. So then me trying to like figure that out and being like, gosh, what is the work then? It's how I came into anti-bias, anti-racist work. And it was like, oh, we got a system blame and not person blame. This is the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, I love that journey. And I think the, the journey to like the start of justice work is really interesting because I think so many people start from a place of like, 
not just like not understanding the justice work, but like not being in an environment of justice work. I think that that's something that like really struck me when I started. I mean, I I come from the arts. I come from theater. I come from storytelling. And so I was immersed in stories that perpetuated these norms, perpetuated these systems. And when I started making it myself as like a queer trans person, even though I wasn't out at the time, you know, what I was making was trying to combat that, right? And when you start doing it yourself, you see the systems start to become more clear, become more visible to you. And I'm curious, so now we're kind of at this part of your journey, right, where you're starting to move into justice work. I'm curious about, okay, what was that clarifying to you? How did that start to happen? That was when we moved to what's commonly known as Houston, Texas. And at the time we moved new state, I started teaching a new grade level and I felt like a fish out of water. And so I knew that I wasn't the only one doing this work, but I just needed to find my people. And I turned to social media and found a group on Facebook called Montessori for Social Justice. And I just came alive. Like every part of my being came alive in that space. The conversations they were having, like, should we allow TPs in our classroom or not? What's our policy of cultural appropriation around Halloween? And then how do we communicate that to our learners and our families? What is our policy around discipline? What do we deeply believe? And then do our practices align with that? And I was like, oh my gosh, I found my people. I'm finding all of this language that I need in order to continue to grow and move forward. It felt very liberating. And And so from there, I found a community. So in the book, for folks who've already read the book, you will see I've started that cultivating liberation framework with community because other people can see your stuff before you can see it. And if Mm -hmm. you have really loving relationships, they can say, you know, I feel like or I'm noticing you're unnecessarily gendering this conversation or learners or this, you know, animal character in a book, or gosh, I've noticed that every time you talk about indigenous people, you're always using past tense. Can you tell me Mm. more? It's like when you really cultivate those loving relationships, you can grow in that area. So as I was doing that, then I started bringing the ABAR practices into my classroom. I started uh, going to conferences and finding other people. Our four-year-old was going to the same school I was teaching at. And he, I woke him up one day to go to school and he said, you know, mommy, mommy, Miss Garcia told me to shut up. And immediately I wanted to, you know, deny it. But as a teacher, you have to go through mandated reporting. Yeah. And I've been through it enough times where, you know, you rehearse, you do like role-playing and you rehearse it where you'd say, I'm a safe person. Thank you for telling me, or can you tell me more? Right. And that's like all you can really say. And then at that point, you report what you know. And so I told Kobe, I was like, oh, thank you for telling me. Can you tell me more? And then he got his stuffed animal. He really got into it. He got got his stuffed animal. He put it on the bed and then he bent down and he was like, Kobe, I need you to shut up. And then I was like, yeah, it happened. Okay. So I called a meeting with the teachers. um, And after school, I just said, hey, Kobe reported this to me. Can you give me some context? And the teacher didn't even blink. And she was like, yeah, I said that. And I was like, you're not going to try and deny it. Like, what? so confident. Mm. And that tells me a lot of different things. You've normalized Mm -hmm. it. You felt comfortable and confident doing it. This probably then wasn't the first time, just like all of this stuff. And I said, oh, okay. 
And I'm like, well, if Kobe's talking, who's he talking to? And he was talking to his best friend, Noah. He's a blonde haired, blue eyed boy, just moved back from France. And I said, well, did you tell Noah? And at that point, like the look of shock and horror came on her face. And mm-hmm. she was like, I didn't. And I said, would you ever think to tell Noah that? And she was like, no. And so at that point it was like, okay, we have to make a radical change. So we decided to homeschool our children for a few years mm-hmm. and we were homeschooling our children. It gave me the freedom to share my journey, what has happened, connect with other people, but also share, well, how am I helping my children to be empathetic, compassionate human beings? How am I helping them to be critical thinkers that they can identify unfairness and work towards justice? That's a really, really powerful story. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so interesting. It's like, it wasn't until that point did I realize maybe how kind of theoretical I was living the work and that oftentimes mm. we can be, right? Like it sounds wonderful when you're teaching a group of learners who are eager in the classroom and it feels very quote unquote safe mm-hmm. in a way, right? It feels wonderful when you have the parents of those learners patting you on the back being like, this is wonderful. I wish I had this. And then it's different when then the injustice comes on your own doorstep and you're like, I have to now navigate, but also align my actions with my values and what what's our plan moving forward. Yeah, that's for sure the test. And like when I go into like libraries and schools and I'm doing like these queer and like gender affirming performances for kids, and especially when I'm doing them in public spaces, like I've done a couple of um, children's museums before, and I just feel so vulnerable because like I've in full view had people walk out on me. I And like that is scary. And, and being confronted with turning your values into action mm-hmm. is, it's a really hard moment. And I think like what you're, t- exactly what you're talking about of like making that decision to start homeschooling your kids and talking about like, how is my child going through this when this is something that like I am developing expertise on as well? How do I walk the walk? and not just kind of think through theory and teach theory. It's a really, really hard place to be in. Thank you for sharing that story. And uh, I, you've, you've seemed to have come on a long way since then. Yeah, I've, I mean, I definitely have made peace with that situation. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a really good place. And Kobe is actually back at that school after five years. This is his first year back. Oh, wow. Right. And I've had like a lot of repairing. And when we think of like, restorative justice, like a lot of that has happened both in me, like, what do I need in order to move through that story? But also then what did Kobe need before we put him back in that environment so that we're making sure the environment is being informing and inclusive. And I can only imagine, right, Lens, like as you're sharing, again, when you're in a public space and people think, right, like it's so easy to think I'm an inclusive person. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I'm going to sign up for this workshop or webinar. And then you show up and then you're like, gosh, I'm really being challenged. Like who I am is being challenged by this information. And so there's something recently I've been sharing with participants. Whenever you feel very challenged and, you know, something takes your breath away or you start to get brain fog, it's like asking yourself, am I unsafe or am I uncomfortable? Hmm. And if you're unsafe, you should leave right? Like if a chair is being thrown at you, if someone is coming at you, you should leave. But if you're uncomfortable, you should stay. And we literally ask our children every single day, show up to school. We put them in an uncomfortable situation 
mm-hmm. I don't mean an unsafe situation, but an uncomfortable situation to learn, to grow, to try something new. We ask them to be uncomfortable to figure out long division or how to you know, divide a decimal. Like we ask them all the time to be uncomfortable in this name of growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, some Discomfort is something that I think about a lot as a white person who's in justice spaces as well. Like I'm never not going to be uncomfortable. And like, that is part of it. And like, I should be uncomfortable because I have a heck of a lot of privilege in a white supremacist structures. And I need to feel that discomfort in order to understand how I can be like functioning within that space to dismantle it and grappling with the ways in which spaces cater to me so that I can say, hey, this is a way that I have privilege in this space and combat that in a way that tries to deconstruct it. It's really hard. And like, we're still talking about theory here, right? And like that and feeling that in a moment is so much harder, but like, it's about doing it over and over and over and over again. And that kind of brings me to like, uh, Anti-racist parenting. I think that there are a lot of different like ideas around on the internet. So I, I want to get your definition. Tell us what is anti-racist parenting to you? I would like to start with the definition of racism and then we kind of Perfect. move into anti-racism and so forth. So the definition that I use when I work with adults is a system of advantage based on race where white people are advantaged and people of the global majority are disadvantaged. And that's a really solid definition that's to the point for the United States. So we can think about anti-racism is the active process of dismantling racism. So that's kind of why for folks who are like, why did she have to start with racism? It's because we have to know what we're dismantling. So it's that active process of dismantling racism so that we can have equality in our outcomes. And I'll kind of keep using that as a phrase of equality in our outcomes. And we do that through doing, some folks will call it equity work or justice mm-hmm. work. It's by recentering conversations or policy so that equality can exist. But if we kind of keep just giving everybody the same thing, we're just gonna keep giving the same outcomes. And so then anti-racist parenting is the work I'm doing with for myself and with my children. And together we're working to dismantle the racism that exists in our child's life. It can exist in our child's life because maybe our child is the target of prejudice acts. It can exist in our child's life because maybe our child is the person that is on the receiving end of those prejudice and racist acts. But it can also be in our child's life because our child could be witnessing it. So we oftentimes kind of call them more of a neutral party. They Mm -hmm. might witness it because they overheard something or through their media and so forth. I'll give an example. So Koei is back at that school again. So Koei came home and said, oh yeah, mom, Jackie said I didn't belong in our triad. And a triad is their working group of three people. And I said, oh, she did. Why did she say that? And Kobe said, because she said it was because I was black. I said, oh, I said, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I just told Jackie that's racist. And I said, oh, and then what did Jackie say? He said, Jackie said, um, well, what's racist? And I said, racist is when you mistreat someone because of color of their skin. And I was like, okay, well, that was pretty on point for a nine-year-old. And Jackie's eight. And so I said, well, then what happened? And He said, Jackie just kind of like shrugged his shoulders and Kobe went back to their desk. I said, okay. And I said, did you tell the teacher? No, I didn't. I said, do you want me to tell the teacher? They said, yes. And so then I said, okay, I will. And then we went on about our dinner. And then later on, I talked to Kobe about it again. And I said, hey, Kobe, I want to talk about that situation 
And I'm really, really happy you told me. And I said, you know, I don't know where Jackie got that idea. I said, but that's a really, really old lie that keeps getting passed around. And it goes something like this, that black and brown people can't be somewhere or can't do something or have access to something because of the color of their skin. And it is a lie. And I don't know where Jackie picked it up, but I'll work with Jackie and Jackie's mom and the teacher so that Jackie can put it back down. And he really seemed kind of unbothered by the whole situation, but it was more like Jackie has a problem and Jackie needs to figure out that problem. But then when I asked him, I said, well, who else was in your triad, right? Because as an anti-racist, we're always thinking about what are the characters at play? Mm. He's like, Aaron. And Aaron's his really good friend. Both Jackie and Aaron are white children. And I said, did Aaron say anything or do anything? And Kobe was like, nope. So when we think of anti-racist parenting, we want to give our children the tools to be able to both identify when a situation is happening that's unfair. And Kobe was able to do that. We also want to give them the tools of, well, what happens when I am the agent of that unfairness? Mm. And then also what happens if I'm witnessing it? And for them to understand that you don't always exist in one absolute, but actually that at any given time, depending on what we've picked up, you can flow in between all three of those. I think as parents, we work so hard to have our children perfect and not make mistakes. And we never want them to be the agent of the harm. Hmm. But truth be told, sometimes they are going to cause harm. And truth be told, sometimes they're going to be harmed. Yeah, we're humans. Yeah. So how do we like move through that instead of getting into that good, bad binary? Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that comes up for me and like, especially in the work that I do with um, anti-racist parenting is that we separate it out sometimes from like gender and queer affirming parenting strategies. And I want to talk about the ways in which you look at anti-racist parenting that encompass it, but also just like why they actually aren't separate conversations. Um, I think that there are overlaps and there are also some differences, but I think that there are more overlaps than, than differences. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with this. There's a section in the, in the book that says, what does it mean to think and parent intersectionality? That section is really important. It was actually where I got a little bit of pushback from the publishers of like, why do we need to include this? Number one, justice work should never be siloed. And if you're ever doing justice work or if you're attending webinars or workshops and you notice the work is being siloed so they're hyper-focusing on one indicator and not being inclusive, that's how you know, gosh, this might be a red flag and I might want to find someone else to listen to and learn from. Number two, it's important that we're always focusing on that everyone receives justice, right? So in anti-racist work, what we're saying is, hey, I'm not going to skip over that conversation of race and racism because it makes me uncomfortable. And in the United States, I'm particularly not going to skip over it because it's such a big factor in predicting outcomes. But what we are also doing as anti-racist is we're advocating for justice of all identity groups because mm -hmm. liberation should not be exclusionary or conditional, mm -hmm. right? I'm never asking a person or a group of people to somehow like, prioritize or pick one identity over the other. Like we have queer mm -hmm. black folks, we got trans, Latina, Latinx folks, uh, non-binary Asian folks, and mm -hmm. they should and have every right to have full liberation and to live an emancipatory life. It's not like, well, we're just going to give this section, like how do you even do that, right? This section, liberation. So we have to remember that. Um, and my favorite quote, honestly, to remember that is from the National Women's Political Caucus. 
uh, from Fannie Lou Hamer. And she said, nobody's free until everybody's free. Mm -hmm. I love, I love that quote. It's a wonderful quote. I think that um, especially coming from kind of like the early childhood ed space, I think folks get a little scared of like big words like intersectionality. And I, I really think that it's actually really easy to talk to young kids, even like three and four year olds about intersectionality, because it's not I mean, like, okay, the the Kimberly Crenshaw, like, theory of it, sure. sure, we're not gonna make them read her paper <laughs> uh, <laughs> on intersectionality. But like, what we can do is like, talk about these different parts of our identity and, and teach them how to layer them on top of each other, right? Yes. And we already do, like oftentimes with thinking about early childhood with young ones and their personal identity, it's like, oh, you're a person mm -hmm. who likes broccoli, but doesn't like Brussels sprouts, right? Like those are two parts of your identities that aren't necessarily in conflict, but just go with one another and coexist or, oh, you're a person that is really loud and loves to be very social on the playground, but you're also a person who maybe doesn't want to do a presentation. Like those mm -hmm. can coexist. And thinking about intersectionality, are there's identities or parts of me that coexist with one another? And it's not saying that I have to pick and choose, right? I can be, and in fact, I am an introverted person that also does public speaking. Those mm -hmm. two identities coexist, right? And it's not that one is more important than the other one. So with young children, I, I 110% agree. And there's so many different activities, like whether you just have them, um, you know, trace their hand and then, and the palm part of their hand, they can write their name. And then each finger is just a part of who they are. Like, can you tell me something? There's like a game I'll play with my children, of the best part of you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I might ask them like, can you tell me the best part of your body or the best part of your thoughts? or the best part of your room, or the best part of our neighborhood, right? And then they can um, think about it and write it down. And like, that's all intersectionality is. It's, it's the coexistence of differences. Yeah, it's a, we don't need to get caught up in like the big word of intersectionality. There's a lot of different, you know, tools we can use to make it something that is actually really, really approachable for young kids. And so kind of getting back into it, what are some of the ways that queer and gender affirming strategies really do coexist with the anti-racist work? And like, are, are they the same thing to you? Where, where does that kind of like nebulous ball of things overlap for you? Yes. First and foremost, it's, it's understanding that all oppression exists in four domains. The things we've internalized, we believe about ourselves, the ways I'm in relationship with one another, the laws and policies that exist either give access or deny access. And then the ideological, it's like, what do we as a society believe to be true? Not necessarily right, but to be true. And then understanding that. So whether we're talking about um, sexism, genderism, transphobia, homophobia, or racism, they all exist in those four domains. Mm -hmm. so in our household, I'm always thinking about, you know, who has access to something or not, or who was present and who is erased or decentered in a conversation. Um, in our household, one thing that we really try to work hard to do is being um, affirming with pronouns and mm -hmm. making sure that we are always acknowledging both what our pronouns are, but making space. So when we go to church, we um, have a name tag that you write down. We always make sure we write our pronouns on our name tags. Just recently, and it's on my to-do list. So just recently, Kobe had, I was making dinner and he was making his lunch and he turned and he said, oh yeah, mom, my pronouns are he and they. And I said, oh, thank you for telling me, right? So first I just like want to acknowledge, thank you for telling me. 
then it's who else have you told? And then who do I need to tell for you becomes the next conversation. So that's that interpersonal part. Mm -hmm. Then it's the institutional part. And it's like, oh, hey, Kobe, I'm going to suggest some books for your school to have. Are there any favorite books that you want to make sure on the list? Or like co-creating a policy of books that will exist at his school. But then it's, I'm going to write a letter. Again, it's an open communication that says, hey, um, I'm not for sure if Kobe's already shared with you or not, but these are their pronouns. You can use he and they. And then my letter is broken into three sections, like what you have to know, what's nice to know, and if you're still reading, right? And like what you have to know is that we parent Kobe in a gender affirming way and that our expectation are that he and they pronouns will be used interchangeably throughout. And that if you have any questions, I am the person that you can talk to about, not necessarily Kobe, right? Like that's just like, you have to know that. And then what's nice to know is just giving them some context about like, well, what are pronouns? Um, I Mm -hmm. love that in your bio, in your email signature, you have your pronouns and then it's like, what's this, right? Because not everyone knows. But those are things that as I'm drafting that, I'm working with Kobe and being like, okay, this is the email that I'm writing. And these are the folks that I'm going to send it to. And then how do you advocate for yourself and remind people? And when I told Kobe, after he had told me, I was like, oh, welcome to the they club. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, there's a club. And it was like, (laughs) well, it's more like a club that just exists in my heart. Yeah, it exists in my heart too. (laughs) But you can create a they club that meets at school. And he was like, Mm. that's so cool. I'm going to see if I can create a they club. And I was like, yeah, you can do that. So that's really important. And then we are always checking each other. I am terrible, terrible about gendering people. And I'm still like unlearning that practice that I grew up with, but I expect my children to hold me accountable. So if we're at the Mm. grocery store and I'm like, oh, I really like the way he bagged our groceries. I mean, my kids right in the moment are like, "Mm, do you know their pronouns? And I'm like, I don't like right in front of them. And so then it's like, I apologize. I unnecessarily gendered you. I really like the way they bagged my groceries, right? If we're like driving and I'm like, oh, I want to learn how to roller skate like them. So we have that expectation of first, what language is actually holding us back versus what is liberating language. Mm. And to me, they, them is a liberating language. Like, what would that be like? If I would have, I didn't, but if I would have raised my children only with they, them pronouns, like that's essentially liberating them from an idea of of gender binary. Like that would have been really beautiful. You know, I'm coming along in my journey, figuring it out. Yeah. And I don't think there's a right way to do it either. I think that's something that I come up with of like, okay, we're we're still like in a gendered world and like what is a way that we can be the mm-hmm. most conscious about gender with our kids? And I think there there are a lot of different strategies. I don't think gendering your kid with they them pronouns from birth is is necessarily a right or a wrong answer to that either. I love that you added that of like there's not and that challenges this idea of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Right? Like anytime that we're like there's a right way to do it, it's like, ooh, that might be some perfectionism sneaking in there. Mm -hmm. And it's how are we open? Yes. Right. And anytime we're doing something that is rooted in othering or discrimination or an exclusionary practice, that's, those are the things we know that, Ooh, I'm not open to that. I am not open to discriminating against a group of people or a person because of who they are, but I am open to like, how do I make my world and my thought and my heart more expansive? Mm. I love that. I love that framing of it. Not even just like 
kind of like a do no harm practice, but like a actively in pursuit of like love and affirmation practice, focusing on the positive instead of the like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing right? And how can I double down on that? Yes, I agree. And that's a really important takeaway for our children too. Like we Mm -hmm. tell them all the time, like, it's okay if you make mistakes, like, what does it really mean to say that mistakes belong here too? And you know what? Sometimes I'm going to get it wrong. But then that's why it's also important to practice restorative justice in our home. How do I repair right, the relationship? How do I ask and model and say, you know, well, how can I make this better? These are the things I'm not going to do moving forward now that you've told me that. And I'm really going to respect that. Having that instead of doing the forced apologies of like, say you're sorry to your brother. Like, okay. I mean, maybe in that one instance, you did stop the harm. But in another instance, the harm is still growing because we didn't give the tools to the children both to repair for next time. But also then how do we critically think, like, how did we get here? And how do we make a sustainable practice so we don't get here again or with someone else? I just, that forced apologies is like, we're just telling our children, whatever you just did, just don't do it in front of me. Mm, Yeah. It's about discipline instead of learning. Yes. Yeah. A forced apology is thinking to, I think about more of like punitive, Mm, it's like a punitive mm -hmm. punishment, right. Instead of the learning piece. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I think that just like wrapping this up a little bit of like this idea of like anti-racism and justice work and like queer and gender affirming strategies, like it's all, it's all the same thing, right. It's all the same work. If you kind of break it down to its kind of like core level, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same skills, Mm -hmm. right? There's some different language that's happening, but it's all the same skills because the oppression operates in the same way, right? Now Mm -hmm. it will manifest and have some different outcomes. Um, And back to like intersectionality, it's why it's important to be aware of, because in that manifestation, okay, well, black trans women are going to have a different outcome than white trans women or white trans men, or white women. So that's important to understand, but the skills of then how do we dismantle it? It always goes back to, you know, who is being harmed in this situation or what are the outcomes that are disproportionate? And then who is causing that harm through policies or institutions? And then what is it? How can I leverage myself, particularly my power and privilege in order for what is right? Yeah, I think what's really important to take away from that is that like, if you're a parent who's pursuing anti-racist strategies and parenting styles, like you're already doing a lot of gender and queer affirming work already. And you maybe if you if you want to kind of like expand upon that work in particular, you have more information that you maybe need to glean from queer and like gender affirming and like trans spaces because it's a different experience with different I I like what you were saying of like outcomes and like Mm -hmm. symptoms of that oppression. So like there's things to learn about that and like unlearning prejudices and biases. But like at the core, like you've already done a lot of that skill work in order to transfer what you're doing as an anti-racist practice into queer and gender affirming practices. So uh, I don't know, like a, a bit of a boon for people who are intimidated by this work. Like you've already done a lot of the legwork you need, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like I am one of the identities I didn't mention is that I am non-disabled. I'm currently non-disabled and I'm also neurotypical. And so like, I feel very early in my journey 
around disability activism. But like, because I know that, gosh, oppression operates in these four domains. So I need to start figuring out what are things that I picked up. That's the way I've internalized it. How am I interacting with disabled folks, right? That's my interpersonal relationship. And in the book, I talk a little bit about this, like under radical minds, it's that liberating language. How Mm -hmm. am I thinking about language that I've picked up around ability and disability that again is holding me back, that is furthering oppression and discrimination? And then how do I listen to and work with disability activists in order to gain liberating language and then pass that on. So a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. As I, I'm someone who uh, has a late diagnosis for neurodiversity, so ADHD and like maybe some other stuff. And so I'm actually like really working through a lot of internalized ableism that like is kept me from those diagnoses for a really long time and Mm. also like makes me nervous about disability justice spaces. And like, I don't feel comfortable being a mouthpiece for that space of justice yet because I'm still working on my own stuff. And I'm also like learning a lot about an incredibly diverse space within disability because there's neurodiversity, there's physical disability, there's intellectual disability, developmental things. There's, it's a huge wide space. And like, even as someone who's starting to claim a disabled identity and a neurodiverse identity, I still have so much to learn despite holding that identity myself. So it's there are lots of different journeys that people are going to, regardless of whether you identify within a community or not. Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting to look at kind of like people like us who have been on these justice journeys and continuing to be on justice journeys within different spaces, but continuing to use the skill sets we've honed as we're kind of navigating different and new terrains for ourselves. Yes. When you were, when you were explaining that, it made me think about um, math and you know Mm -hmm. how like in math class, when you're a teacher is like, you need to master these concepts because you're going to see them again next year, but it will Mm -hmm. build on it. Right. And it's like every time you started another math class, like in a different year, you always felt like you were starting from ground zero, but you weren't right. Like you still were using two plus two is four, but then maybe in like an algebraic equation. And I think of like the justice journey being like that. It's a spectrum. And so you're always kind of at times feeling like, gosh, I'm starting over, but you already have these building blocks. So if you've already been doing, you know, queer justice work, gender affirming work, you have these building blocks that you can then apply Mm -hmm. to a new class, to a new course. Exactly. With that, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back and we're going to answer a couple of questions. Um, So we'll see you then. All right, I am back with Britt Hawthorne and we're going to answer a couple of questions from all of y'all. You ready, Britt? I am. I think I'm ready. Let's let's see. (laughs) Okay, let's tackle them. All right, here's the first one. Can you share a bit about the differences between cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation? I'm confused. (laughs) Yes. Okay. This is a great question. I feel very prepared to respond to it because it's something that I have like been building my muscle around. First and foremost, I acknowledge that while this question, the person who submitted the question has made it like a verse as there's like a binary, I just want to remind folks Anytime we kind of get into binary thinking, just proceed with caution. So please know that they're like, think of it as a Venn diagram and there's going to be some overlap here. Cultural appropriation, the way that I find most simplistic to both understand, but also work with our children. It's when we take pieces of another culture, 
It's not our culture. And we either use them out of context, we use them without permission, we try to monetize it. And it's also really important for cultural appropriation is oftentimes we're talking about things that are either sacred to another culture, or we're talking about things that when that culture does it, they are discriminated against. But when we do it, we get praised. So I'll give kind of some examples. A couple of years ago, we were at a grocery store chain and right when you walk in, they have plants and I typically will buy like eucalyptus or some type of flower. So I always stop right there. Mm-hmm. And Kobe was like, look, mom, the sugar skull. Uh, and they had the day of the dead planters painted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, these are really beautiful and super cute. And Kobe right away was like, are the owners of this store, are they Hispanic? Are they Mexican? And I was like, you know what? They're not, they're European. And so he was like, isn't this cultural appropriation? I said, you know what? They are taking a piece of somebody else's culture. They are using it out of context and they are profiting for it. So I guess if we wanted this planter, what do we need to do? And he knew how to answer that. Hmm. This also kind of comes into conversation. I got into a heated conversation with my sister because she had bought a teepee again from a, online. She bought it from a main retailer. And I was like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. This could be cultural appropriation happening, right? And there's a gray area that can happen. It's like always, what is our intention behind this? And then why do we feel the need to kind of consume or dominate somebody else's culture? Like we simply could just have a tent, can't we? Mm-hmm. Cultural appreciation then happens when we allow cultures to be in charge of pieces of their culture and they can exchange them with us, right? So there's an equal exchange that's happening. Those I always think about whenever you can go to like a cultural festival or a museum that's led by the community or a webinar or a workshop that is led by the community. I think of like powwows, right? Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful cultural exchange where they are in charge They are saying, not only are we going to monetarily benefit from what we are selling, we get to choose what we're going to sell, how we're going to sell, who we're going to sell to. We get to be in charge of those rules. And so we always want to practice cultural appreciation with our children. And then last but not least, and I share in the book, Joe Emmy writes a piece about cultural appropriation in the book, and she talks about uh, kimonos. And I have an email template in the book where whenever I'm online and I'm shopping, and I have a non-Japanese business that is selling, I'm going to put in quotation marks, a kimono. Then I email them and I'm like, hey, I wonder if you would call it a duster or a robe. Like, because you're Mm -hmm. diminishing the significance of what truly a kimono is, we want to make sure we're practicing accurate language. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think that that's like a great practical tool to use. And I love that you have an email template in your book as well, because it's so hard to like come up with language like that on your own, especially when it's something so culturally specific as well. Like, and I think people get sometimes confused about like, because it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's a blurry line that gets drawn in the sand of like, this is appropriation versus this is appreciation. Like, I am Jewish, and it was recently Passover um, when we're recording this. And I and I threw a Seder for some of my friends. And I think there was one other Jewish person there. And, you know, that was a part of my culture that I wanted to share with my friends. And I was actually really happy to share it with them and share, you know, part of who I am and how I grew up with my friends who haven't maybe been exposed to a Passover Seder before. And like attending that is totally cool. But like, I would never want my friends who I invited to throw their 
own Passover Seder, that would like feel kind of weird and yicky. (laughs) Yes. And then on top of that, not only like throwing it, but then charging money for it. Like that's another one. It's like, oh, and then come to my Passover Seder and it's going to be $5 per person. And so, you know, it's just like, wow, this is really starting to ramp up the level of appropriation that's happening here. And I also wanted to give an example too of like when there's a community that's discriminated. So thinking about TPs, right? And the forced um, relocation and removal of indigenous folks here on the stolen land of Turtle Island. And then us forcing indigenous folks who were living in TPs, because I recognize the vast majority of indigenous folks did not live in TPs. They have diversity of shelters, but taking those and saying, hey, you can't live in TPs, the U.S. government burning TPs. Centuries later, now we have companies that are selling TPs like, oh, everyone can live there, right? I also think about that with black hairstyles. We just got the Crown Mm -hmm. Act passed, just got the Crown Act passed saying you cannot, as an employer, you cannot discriminate against somebody's hairstyle as long as they're wearing a hairstyle that is like a protective style and a hairstyle that allows them to do their job. You cannot discriminate because before you had companies that legally if you had an employee that came in with box braids or cornrows, you could just fire them on the spot. And that was justifiable. But again, then you have folks who aren't using those hairstyles as protective styles. They wear them and then they get praised of like, oh, they're so trendy. They're so fashionable, right? That's another example of cultural appropriation where we want to be able to allow cultures to preserve their culture. And the goal is always going to be appreciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, to go back to um, TPs for just one second, because I think it's a really helpful um, way to to talk about this. And I also think that um, it, this comes up a lot in indigenous and native culture when we're talking about appropriation versus appreciation. And I think like everything you were saying about how white people have treated native folks and TPs in particular um, throughout history, but also like the stealing of the idea of a teepee and turning Mm. it into a symbol for indigenous people and like indigenous culture when it's not actually a ubiquitous thing within native culture, especially in the present time right now. And letting, you know, white people and white culture dictate what is a symbol of an oppressed culture and create a narrative like what Pocahontas did for um, as like a Disney movie that basically taught, I don't know, I'm a millennial, but an entire generation about what quote unquote indigenous culture is and indigenous history is when that actually has absolutely no connection to what one, what actually happened, and two, what Native culture is and gave an entire generation of people the wrong impression of what it means to be Indigenous. So yeah, it really spirals out and isn't just, you know, buying a teepee on a a website, right, that's being monetized by a a non-Native person. It becomes a cultural systemic oppression that gets perpetuated. Yes. Oh, I'm over (laughs) here just like snapping my fingers. And I'm still unpacking because Mm -hmm. I loved Pocahontas. And I, and I absolutely can just own up. I remember for first grade, I was quote, I'm I'm putting quote unquote Pocahontas because I actually wasn't the Pocahontas, Mm. but I was the Disney creation. And I remember that for first grade and me just not only wearing a commercially bought Halloween costume, 
Right. But then like going around and being like, I'm Pocahontas, I'm Indian. Like now, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I think I probably would have, I would have gone viral. And it's like, because this is not okay. We cannot continue to minimize a culture to one identity and at the same time, not working in justice, not working in solidarity at all with indigenous folks. Like the TP is, is not the way to do justice work. Yeah. It's not the way. <laughs> okay. I think that's a great way to wrap up that question. Um, we are at time. Um, so thank you so, so much to Britt for joining me. Where can people find you on the internet? Now is a place to plug. If you want to plug, go for it. Awesome. You can read along on Instagram. I share a ton of information at Britt Hawthorne. And if you're looking for something a little bit more structured, you can check out my website. I have information there for educators and parents and subscribe to my weekend newsletter. Um, I promise you, I'm only going to email you on the weekend. Amazing. I love it. All right. Thank you so much, Britt. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Linz. That was my conversation with Britt Hawthorne. How fantastic are they? Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. Make sure you pick up Britt's new book. It just came out. You can get it wherever you get your books. So, so excited for her. So excited for this book to be out in the world. As always, you can follow me at Linz Amer on Twitter and Instagram. That's L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. I'm also at Queer Mixter Rogers on TikTok if you're over there. Make sure you also follow Queer Kid Stuff at Queer Kid Stuff. Just one kid, not multiple kids. Queer Kid Stuff on Instagram, Twitter. Um, we're not on TikTok with the brand yet. If you like the podcast, make sure you give it five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. I love reading the reviews. So if you like this episode or any other episode, please think about reading a review. I would love, love to hear what you think about the podcast and what we're trying to do here. Make sure you check out QueerKidsStuff.com for our other projects. We've got a lot of cool stuff going on over there. Make sure you sign up for our Patreon and get that June exclusive sticker bundle. I promise you're going to want it. And I think that's it for me. Thanks for hanging out with me. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzio. <laughs>